0: Okay, Tanya Life, Para Base, chapter 22. And we begin with a story. This is a famous story, but the interpretation of the, of the story may be a little less famous. The story takes us back one generation to the times of the previous Rebbe, the Rebbe's father in law, who suffered greatly at the hands of the Soviets. And he was arrested and was condemned to execution. And because of the, the efforts um, played by many different government officials all over the world, especially here in America, um, and in Latvia, um, he was the sentence was commuted and then commuted to exile, not death, and then was commuted further that he could go free, but he must leave the country. The Friedrich Rabbah, the previous Rabbah, was unique amongst all the Rabbis of Chabad in the fact that he he was such a prolific writer, many different areas. But especially interesting is that he was a very very dedicated writer to his diary. Um, and he had an extremely talented, expressive pen. You have an entire section of this diary dedicated to the night he was in prison. He describes it in detail, very, very, very de- detailed fashion. It's all translated to English. Um, and it was just um, the most horrendous arrest you could imagine. That, and with complete disregard and disrespect for the person who was. Um, and in one of the scenarios that's described over there in prison, there is a, he, re- he records an interaction that he had with the interrogator. No, they would interrogate, they would wake you up at 3 a.m. and bring you to the interrogation room. And just so you understand the dynamics over here, the previous Rebbe spoke Russian fluently, obviously understood Russian expertly, but he refused to talk to them in Russian. He said, I'm going to talk in Yiddish. They had to bring an interpreter to interpret, even though he knew exactly what they were saying, understood Russian beautifully. But he refused, he was going to talk Yiddish because he didn't want to bend to them, even the slightest. To the extreme, was he so confident and held his ground that he didn't even want to speak their language. But the famous anecdote, which everyone knows, is that he was being very tough. He wasn't releasing any information. And they were trying to crack him. One of them put a gun on the table and told him, that this little toy has made many people speak, threatening him that way to which the Rabbi answered he said that little toy can only frighten someone who has two gods and one world but cannot frighten someone who has one god and two worlds I have one God and two worlds. You can't fight. Okay, that's the end of the story. The interpretation of the story comes from the great Hasidic teacher of our generation, Rabbi khan Olam Roshal, passed away last year. And he asked a very simple question. It's a very simple question. The previous Rabbi was trying to br- trying to bring across a certain message to this person was trying to bring a certain message to this interrogator by saying the following. If you have only one world, then when you leave this world, you're done. Right? So obviously, a gun is quite scary. It can take your life away. And you're done. I have two worlds. If I leave this world, I go to a better place. I'm not scared of your gun. Right? That's a simple message. Why did the Friedrich the insert... The idea of one god, two gods. In fact, he was talking to a Soviet atheist, obviously, who doesn't believe in any gods. Why was he telling him, he who believes in two gods and one world is scared of that toy? And he who believes in one god and two worlds is not scared of that toy. The message could have come across quite well by saying, he who believes in two worlds is not scared of be who believes in one world is scared and leave out the whole mention of gods? That's the question to which Abel answered as follows. In life, in general, in the world, you see people who are dedicated, their entire life is dedicated to running away from and running to running away from what they perceive as negativity, bad, evil, running to good, positive, and feel good, right? That's your whole life. Naturally, people feel that there's two forces in the world, two forces. There's the good and the bad. So your whole life you're running away from the bad, and you're running to the good, right? So a person who has two gods in his life, meaning two forces, he sees the world as split, that there's the bad and the good, He is a person who's scared of a gun because the gun represents something bad. I'm scared of the bad. But if you are a person who has one God, meaning the good and the bad in the world as you perceive it, all come from the same source and even something that has a connotation of negativity, you don't have to be scared of it. It's all coming from God. You understand? And this opens up the idea of chapter 22. The idea that every single thing in this world, the forces of positivity, the forces of negativity, are indeed those forces. We don't deny their existence. Yet we know that behind the scenes, there is a single unified force from which they both come out, from which they both are derived, and that is God himself. So, before we begin, and I take you back to the where we're up to in the terms of the journey of the Tanya, I want to introduce a skill. I want to see if you're able to hold a certain skill, which everyone here is able to do, but just to be conscious of it. It's a mental skill, the mental skill, okay? The skill, then, the ability to hold contradictory ideas in your mind until they synthesize. Okay, meaning we're not asking that you shall walk away with the contradiction in your mind, and then be comfortable with the contradiction. That's that. That's not what the brain's about. The brain wants to figure out things, but, but. There's a certain skill which is usually attached to higher learning, right? You don't really have this in elementary school. Elementary school things are black and white, but once you get to college, you know we could expect from someone who's older this type of skill that you can hold two contradictory things in your mind, and you can hold them in your mind and hold them as both true until you figure out, until the whole idea develops, and you see how they they can be synthesized. Why do I say this as an introduction? Because we're going to have that a lot in our chapter two things which are both true yet you can't understand how they both could be true if one is true the other should be false If one is false other should be true but the idea is that they're both true and until you develop the full idea have them both in your mind and with that i take you to the background of where are we up to in the journey of tanya so as we started in chapter 20 we started developing a particular mental exercise that a person can go through in order to activate their inherent love for Hashem within them. Chapter 18 and 19, we, des- we described that every single Jew, being that they're Jewish, they have a Jewish soul. If they have a Jewish soul, then by nature inherently they have within that soul something called a hava a dormant, hidden love for Hashem that can never be extinguished like the flintstone in deep in the water, you'll take it out of the water, it could still be ignited. Every single person who has a Jewish soul has that within them. The key is to ignite it, the key is to actually rub the flintstone. So, how do you do so? How do you do so? And why is it so important to know why we need to ignite this hidden love? Because, as we describe, we are trying to come to a space, the purpose of our lives is trying to come to a space where all thoughts speech and action are excellent they're all for Hashem they're all excellent there's no thought there's no speech there's no action not one single word not one single thought that are not aligned with Hashem's will which is a tall order how do we get there so the promise is that if you can know how to ignite your Avamus Paris your hidden love you'll be able to get there so how do you do that how do you ignite it so the author Rebbe is going to give us a five chapter Sequence, which is from chapter 20 to 25, which is going to build an argument, going to build an actual argument, where you can mentally process this argument with multiple steps. And if you will understand this mentally, your mind naturally has the power to drive your person. Your mind is the strongest tool that you have. If you can mentally process, process this again and again, you have this reflection again and again, then you'll be able to ignite within your heart the Abba Misotera is the hidden love. So we're go- right now th- going through that mental process. So very quickly what we discussed in chapters 20, 21 and then we're going to get to 22. What did we describe? We said that all of Torah, the czar tells us that all of Torah, all six of all the commandments could be sourced in two fundamental principles. These two fundamental principles are the first commandment and the second commandment in the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is I am the Lord, your God. You should know that I am God. That is a source for all positive commandments. It's a positive commandment. You should know that I am I am, I am, am Hashem. All positive commandments flow from that. The negative commandment, the second commandment, which is You should not have any other gods. That is the source and encapsulates all of the negative commandment. And we had a fundamental question. We said, if you want to tell me that the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, the positive commandment of no Hashem, is the source of all positive commandments, I tell you, understood. Why? Because obviously, I need to know that Hashem is my God in order to fulfill His commandments. If I don't know Hashem is my God, then all the commandments can be thrown out the window. Obviously, I have to have that as a fundamental building block. All right?" What I don't understand is not having idols, not having other gods, how is that the source for every other negative commandment? How is that the source for don't eat hummets? How is that the source for don't eat um, pork, right? What is, that, what is not bowing down to idols, not serving idols? have to do with all the negative commandments. That is the question you started out with, right? right. So in order to answer this question, we went on a journey the journey with a quest to understand the most fundamental concept of all, which is achtas Hashem. Achtas Hashem, the oneness of Hashem. And the way we did that, we introduced parables. We introduced we introduced um, analogies. And we discussed the whole idea of analogies. That analogies are meant to give you an imperfect picture. They're meant to give you a notion. It cannot really be perfect. An analogy can't really be perfect because I'm trying to bring you from one space to, uh, to give you an idea of what this topic's talking about. I can't directly explain to you. I can't directly describe it to you. So what I do is I give you an analogy of something else. If you understand this over here, then you'll probably understand what happens over here. But I can't bring you over here because I can't actually describe it to you. So I have to rely on an analogy. Once I'm relying on an analogy, which is of another space, it will be imperfect. It won't really be perfect as opposed to an example. i give you an example. I'll give you an example directly. Right? We describe that. So we went through some analogies to understand what this means, After Hashem. Achtas Hashem, the oneness of Hashem. The oneness of Hashem is arguing like this. Achtas Hashem is arguing like this. Not that there's no other gods. Obviously, there's no other gods. That is the most more simplistic understanding of monotheism. Obviously, there's no other gods. There's only one God, right? That's the obvious thing. Why is that so obvious? Because if you think about it just for a second, you realize that if there's a God who's unlimited and truly unlimited. And obviously, there can't be any space for any other God. He's truly unlimited. If you're going to say there's other gods, other powers, yeah, sheer, they sheer power, then they're both limited. So if you're saying God, by definition, is unlimited, it has to be one God. ash Hashem is arguing that there's no other mitzios. There's no other existence. Not that there's no other God. Obviously, there's no other God. There's not even any other existence, which obviously poses, poses a problem to our empirical experience. Now, we do see that there's other existence. There's me. Is the table and the cup of water. So how can you say that there's no other existence if there's a God? So we have to explain this via a parable. was a parable we used. We actually have to use two parables, and we actually we inserted a third, but two main parables. Parable number one is bars and Torah, taken straight from the creation story where Hashem spoke the world into existence. Why did Hashem speak the world into existence? Hashem obviously doesn't speak. It's a parable. What's the parable? Parable is human speech. Human speech. Human speech has this, has these qualities, elements to, to it, which we can borrow to understanding how the world was created. Number one, human speech is for the other. Not for yourself. If you're the only one in the room, you don't speak. If you're the only one in the world, you wouldn't need to speak. So obviously, they're for the other. Same here, same thing here. God had to contract his energy to make another. Before the world was created, there was no other. Now that there's an other, there has to be a unique energy for that, and that's called this. That's called speech. Okay, All right? Let's let's continue. I'm giving a synopsis of the past two weeks, and it's getting very intense. Right? Everyone understands what we're up to. Not yet. We just back. We'll take one step back. We, in order to understand. How it could be that we could claim that God is the only existence. There's no other existence aside for God and not be laughed out of the room. Because obviously there's other existence. We have to explain that via a parable. What was the parable? The parable is speech, human speech, just like a person speaks. Number one, it's only for the other. That means it's God's otherness energy. Number two, when you speak, one word that you say is so insignificant, the gamut of all the words you say throughout the day, and it's definitely insignificant to the pool of words that you've said throughout your life, and how much more insignificant is it to the, all the potential speech, which is infinitely more than all the spoken speech. If you understand that, you'll understand how insignificant the world as a creation is to the creator. So insignificant is it that you could claim that it's not existent. Just like I would say one, one, one word that you speak throughout the day is so insignificant to you that you won't remember it five minutes later right you just you five minutes later you can't remember the word you said that's how insignificant each single word is so too that's a parable to understand how the world also is so insignificant to the creation it's like non-existent that's how insignificant it is however this wasn't obviously because the parable is incomplete why is it incomplete because the spoken word has an independent uh, the, as spo- the spoken word has an independent identity obviously because it's an actual word that you said so once it leaves your mouth as we know once a word leaves your mouth you never swallow back gone if you can't swallow back that means it has an independent life it was spoken it was spoken there's obviously a difference between speaking and not speaking there is some sort of difference so it has an independent entity. So if we're trying to explain to you that the world, the creation with the creator has no independent entity, it's an incomplete parable. So we introduce a different parable. We said, imagine the spoken word before you speak it. Imagine the spoken word while it's still in your mind or it's still in your heart. So it's still part of you. That's an analogy for the world as a creation of Hashem. Hashem creates the world. It's a through word, it's a word, but it's still in him. It's still in him. And what the con- the contemporary example we gave of this was, imagine you're imagining your trip to Florida, right? That with all the details in your Florida and it's all building in your mind and where you're going and how you're going and who you're going to be with and are you going to visit and where you're going to eat and where you're going to sleep and what time you're going to wake up and all the details within it and then crash in the kitchen. Your daughter breaks a glass. And you jump up. what happened, everything okay? Everything's okay, we're cleaning up, mom, it's fine. What happened to Florida, right? Not that Florida went away, not that your plans went away, not that you're, you're, you put Florida on the side in order to, uh, to, to go for the, for the emergency that happened in the kitchen. It ceased to exist. It didn't have any existence. It was a whole piece of your mind. The moment all of it has ceased to exist so much is the world, the creation in relation to Hashem. We are but like a piece of his mind, which is just existing because of Hashem's existence. It doesn't have its own existence. There is no existence of the world besides for God. It's counterintuitive. It's not the way we experience life from day to day, but it's definitely something you can think about and contemplate. Contemplate this fact that we are even less of a, that see us, we are even less of an existence than the Florida trip being painted in your mind, even less. That's the way we should view ourselves in relation to Hashem. We are all small within Hashem's mind, so to speak. So to speak. Obviously, we're so to speak because it's all a parable. So that's what we're up to. That's what we're up to. Now, we're going to take this a step further. We're going to take it now to its conclusion. We're going to take the argument, we're going to pull the strings of the circle and tie it up at the end. So we have a full picture now of the entire argument of Ahtas Hashem, which is the oneness of Hashem and how that could be true even though we have our empirical experience. It goes against what we see, it goes against what we smell, it goes against what we taste, it goes against what we feel, it goes against everything, it still be true. Okay? And I'm going to say something that may shock you. It may shock you. If you were listening to the past three chapters and you're delving to the past two chapters and you were understanding the past chapters, and now I'm going to tell you everything I said, I'm going to turn it on its head. I'm going to say now the exact opposite. And you just understand that both could be true. Use that skill of both could be true. I started off chapter 20 by saying a statement, by giving an axiom to this entire argument. What's the axiom? That analogies are not perfect. I compared it to examples. Analogies, by nature, are imperfect. Okay, and as we've seen, as we've discussed, the analogy is not perfect. The analogy of a spoken word, of a person speaking, and you want to say that the same way a person speaks, you know, it's the same way Hashem creates the world. It's not exactly. It teaches us some. It teaches us something. It gives us a little. It gives us a notion, but it's not exactly perfect. There's an exception to that rule, though. There are analogies that do have to be perfect. Which analogies? If it's an analogy in Torah, if it's an analogy that we're deriving from Torah itself, there is perfection there. If Torah is giving you an analogy of God, God spoke, God came down, God became angry. All these things are analogies, right? We're not saying that God actually becomes angry, like we become angry. It's giving us a notion, giving us understanding. It's giving us a, 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 a an understanding into it, it's a metaphor, right? If it's a metaphor in Torah, because Torah is precise and perfect, the analogy, the metaphor that's giving is also precise. In some level, we have to find out how, in some level, it is. And therefore, I tell you like this. Okay, let me take you back to the analogy, the metaphor, of speaking. How we said that there's one element that we could borrow. But there's another element that we can't borrow. When a person speaks and they say a word, that one word is insignificant to the rest of all the words they said that day. It's insignificant to their whole life. So it's like, it's it's as if it's nothing. You could have done without it. That is an element that we're borrowing to explain how the world is insignificant to God. That's how much, that's how little it matters. What was the element that we could not bring over? The element of dependency or independency. To say that the word is completely, completely part of the person, not true. A word has an independent nature. The world has an independent nature. We wanted to demonstrate that it doesn't. So that element we didn't borrow over. Okay? So again, the element, there's two elements that we that we that of, of the analogy of speech. A person says a word. Number one, it's insignificant. The word is is a garnish in Yiddish compared to everything else happening in their life. It's just one word. It's insignificant. Element number two is that the word has independent life. So element number one, that the the insignificance we did learn over. We did extract from this space, from the physical space, the physical analogy of a person speaking. We did transfer it over to the analog, which is God, creation of the world. Yes, correct. The world is insignificant to the creator. But what we did not transfer over was the fact that a spoken word in the physical sense by a physical person, the word leaves the person, it has an independent nature, it has, it, has, it has definition, it's a word. It has its own definition, it has its own parameters. By the world, we didn't want to bring that over because we we're trying to prove that the world has no, no independence. So therefore, half of the analogy we brought over, half of the analogy we didn't bring over. Now we're saying in parakot Bay says the author Rebbe, Dei bratera kilashim adam which means that Torah speaks in the language of man, meaning that Torah is giving you an analogy for, the analogy here is actual speaking, right? Hashem spoke, by er. Hashem said there should be light, there was light. Hashem actually spoke the words, the world into existence. It's in order to give you a full understanding, a full understanding of how that worked. on some level. And therefore the analogy I'm giving you has to match up on all corners, and therefore, even the element of the analogy, which is the word that a person says has independent nature, is also true when it comes to the creation of the world. How so? How so? I'm flipping everything on its head. They're flipping everything on its head, because it was so, it was so not wanted this element, the very fact that a word is independent, we didn't want to demonstrate the world is independent. We had to bring another analogy. We had to say, imagine the word before it leaves the mouth. Remember about the second analogy? Imagine the word before it leaves a person's mouth. That's how dependent the world is on Hashem. That's how no mitzvahs. that's how no existence is at. Now we, we have to go to a second analogy because this analogy wasn't perfect. Now what we're saying is the analogy of speech has to be perfect, and therefore the very fact that a person utters a word has independence, God's creation the world also has independence. So it's it's in contradiction to what i said till now on one hand the world has no metzius the world has no existence after hashem the declaration that we say in shema yisrael if you recall from last time the declaration that we say shema yisrael is the declaration of the highest order shema yisrael hashem elokeinu hashem's name of hashem and elokeinu the second name of hashem which one denotes hashem Above creation, no, no um, relation to creation, where creation doesn't exist. And then the second name of Hashem, which is the name that creates, it's all one. Meaning to say that there's no real, there's no real independent existence of the world. That's what I'm saying in this hand. And on this hand, I'm telling you that the world does have an independent existence. How do these two things, How are these two things true? How are these two things true? According to Torah, they're true. We have to understand how these two things could remain true. And the way I'm going to do that is by saying it as follows. There's going to be a difference between Hashem's perspective and our perspective. Hashem's perspective and our perspective. When we say Hashem's perspective, we don't mean Hashem's perspective as opposed to us because we can adopt Hashem's perspective. We have the ability to adopt it, at least from time to time. What we're saying is that Hashem created this dynamic that there's two different perspectives, one called Elion, which means higher, one called Tafton, which means lower, and both of them are true. Both of them are true. It's a dynamic of dual truism, if that's a word. They're both true. The higher perspective, which is known in Kabbalah, so this is Das Eliyin. Das meaning um, knowledge, but can be perspective in this in this context. It means perspective. The higher perspective is called Ms La which means truth to its nth degree, like utter truth, ultimate truth, ultimate truth. The lower perspective, which is called in Kabbalah Chassidus, Das Aftan, which is a lower perspective, is called Emes. It's truth. It's not Emes La'amitay. It's not truth to its nth degree, but it's still true. And Torah sanctions both perspectives. In other words, they're both true. They're both true. There's Hashem's perspective, and then there's our perspective. So let's just unpack. What's Hashem's perspective? What's our perspective? Okay. So, Hashem's perspective is that these are Aramaic words which come from the Zohar. which means kula everything. Kame, beforehand. Kila, not like not shiv is is um is uh insignificant. is insignificant. No significant Okay, which means another term from the czar, you have another term is lace asar which in Aramaic means there is no place, lace aside, there's no place, panoi void, mine of him. From a perspective, there is absolutely no other existence whatsoever to the world. The lower perspective is assumed by us. What's the lower perspective? The lower perspective you have to understand is not that, oh, the world is independent and has its, uh, on its own and it's ro- running on its own devices. No, no. It's as follows. And over here, we we go back, we introduce, introduce the parable of a turtle or a snail. Remember that. That is going to be the key to understanding the lower perspective over here. A snail has a body and a shell. But unlike other creatures or like human beings, the snail, his clothes, its protective shell is part of him. But the turtle, also, right? Its shell, it's part of him. It's not something it dons, it's something that's part of him. You would not claim that the shell of the turtle is less turtle than the other parts of the turtle. It's all part of the turtle, just like. Your arms and your legs are all part of you, all part of your body. It's not Maybe one has a different function, but they're all part of the body. Same thing with the turtle. Different functions. It has a brain, a heart, legs, and everything. It has a shell. Different functions. But it is part of the turtle. But its function functions as a concealment to the turtle itself. Whether for protective purposes, hide under its shell, and from predators, or it protects it from the sun. Whatever whatever function it functions, it functions as a concealment. It functions as a concealment, very much the same way we would put on clothes. We're concealing ourselves, right, for different reasons, but the clothes are not part of us. Once we take off our clothes, we have only revealment. We don't have anything that's concealing us, but a turtle has part of its body, it's concealing. Use that to understand the way Hashem created the dynamic of the world from our perspective, that there is revealment and concealment. Hashem has himself revealed. Hashem has himself concealed. Both equally part of Hashem. Both forces in this world are, there's only two forces in this world. There's only two functioning forces in this world. Reveal, revealment, concealment. These are the two forces in this world. And they're both part of Hashem. From Hashem's perspective, there's no two modes whatsoever. There's no two modes. From Hashem's perspective, it's all just Hashem. There's no two perspectives. Hashem created that from our perspective. There should be two modes, revealment and concealment. Why did Hashem create it that way? Simply put, to give us free choice. If we didn't have that. If we didn't have these two forces in the world, if we didn't have the two things to compare, there'd be no free choice. Hashem's desire was that there should be free choice in a world that we should create, a dwelling place for Hashem, as we'll explain later in later, later chapters. So that's the reason why he did it. But the the actual fact we get here in this parak that's how Hashem created the world, that there should be the forces of revealment and concealment. Now, hold this stop because this is going to be very, very important, okay? Before we circle back to the of Sedaris, before we circle back to the Ten Commandments, okay, you should understand that this gives us a Kabbalistic understanding from the Kabbalah view, an understanding of what evil is, what bad is, what negativity is, and where it gets its power. Okay? I want you to, to, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get into the, now now we're going to get into the Ten Commandments. I apologize. We're going to get back into the question of the Ten Commandments. Okay? Now, what? getting back to our original question, right? The first commandment, I am Hashem, your God, is the source of all positive commandments. That means, eat matzah, build the sukkah, keep Shabbos, all positive commandments, obviously derived from I am Hashem, your God. Because I'm Hashem, I give you commandments command. Okay. You should not have any idols, any other gods before me, it is the source of all negative commandments. Don't eat comets, don't work on Shabbos, all the doves. How does that work? Okay. Let's analyze the words right now. And what we're going to do is we're going to introduce... The soul interpretation of the Torah, as we explained extensively in the background of Tanya, and throughout the chapters, Tanya is built on two. It's a synthesis. It brings together the two major pillars of the Torah as it was given to Moshe at harsinai Just like a person has a body and a soul, and the truth is, just like everything in this world has its body and soul, so to the Torah, which is instruction. And how to navigate this world also has a body and a soul. The soul of the Torah, the body of the Torah. In Kabbalistic terminology, there's nishmasa deraisa, soul of Torah, or there's a gufa deraisa, the guf, the body of Torah. The body of Torah was taught, revealed, promoted, promulgated to all the people in the desert, to everyone, men, women, and child. And it was throughout history, it was something that was continuously given over to everyone as wide as possible to next generation and then the next and then the next and that includes the Talmud, Halakha and all the do's and all the don'ts. Literally everything that pertains to our body. The instruction on how to behave, the instruction on what to do, everything that pertains to the body is in the body Torah. The soul of Torah speaks to the soul of the person. Anything that pertains to the soul of the person or the world, the inner workings of the world, the inner understanding, the secrets of creation, Also, our inner passion or our inner connection to Hashem, all that is discussed in the nishmas of the soul of the Torah, which is, as we know, it's another word for Kabbalah, is the secrets of Torah, which are given to Moshe Rabbeinu, transmitted only to select few, then transmitted only to select few, and only much later generations was it more widely taught. Okay? So... Every piece of Torah, every Pasuk in Torah, has its body interpretation and its soul interpretation. has the way you can read it, the body way and the soul way. Two sides of a coin in the same words in the Torah. So take these words, Elohim Acherim al panai. What does that mean, Elohim Acherim, Other gods. Other gods, the body of Torah tells you it's worshipping other gods. Worshipping the sun, the moon, idols, etc. The soul interpretation is, I'm going to explain to you these words from a soul perspective. What does Elohim mean? What does Elohim mean? So as Kabbalah explains, and as I mentioned in passing just now, Elohim is, could mean God's; it could also be the word that the name of Hashem, which describes his involvement in creation. And that's why Elohim is plural. Whenever we say Hashem Elohim, we're saying plural. Did you notice that? What's the singular of Elohim? Eloka. Elokay. That's a singular. Elohim is plural. Why is it plural? Because there's inherent in the creation is plurality. That's the whole idea. That the energy of Hashem is manifest into billions, into trillions of different objects, into trillions of different, different, uh, different elements of creation. Right? So it, it it it's it's uh it's fractured. Inherently, creation is a bunch of fractured pieces, right? We're all a whole bunch of fractured pieces. The source of everything is un is unified. The source of everything Hashem is one big unity, but creation, the outcome is fractured. Therefore, we use the word elokim. In fact, the word ha elokim or the hey has the exact same gematra, exact same numerical value as the words Hateba, Which means nature. So over there you already see that the battery, the battery behind it, the energy in, in the universe, energy in the world, is the world of Okay. "acherim." In the body interpretation, "acherim" means others. Other gods. The soul interpretation is "acherim" comes from the word, is related to the word Achorayim. What does achorayin mean? Even in modern Hebrew, achorayin means back, back. Achora, go backwards. Ponay, al panay. What does panai mean? It could be before me, it could mean my face. Ponim, ponim, uponim means beautiful face, right? So a face, Punim and even in modern Hebrew means a face. Where does the word punim come from? Panim comes from the word panimios, which means inner. Why is a face called panim? Because on a person's face, you can see what's going on inside. There's so much depth to a person's face. There's so much nuance to a person's face that you could understand from someone's face what they're thinking, even if you don't understand what you're understanding, really. You have a sense. You can get a sense. You get a sense of someone's face that they're uncomfortable. You get a sense of someone's face that they're awkward. That get a sense of someone's face that they're that they're they're not here, they're thinking of something else. But and, and without without even, uh, even giving any serious expression like anger. Because the face reveals everything. It's panim, it tells you what's going on inside in the pinion. Okay? So achorayim and Panim. This is the way to understand this. This is the way to understand this. Okay. Elokim, Hashem's energy is infused in this world. There's two ways. There's Panim, there's Pnimius. well, there's Ahurayim. I'll give you an example of Panim energy and Ahurayim energy. Okay? As the, the altar actually gives this example. Imagine you are working, I mean, I'm going to say it in my own words. Imagine you're working for uh, a government entity and you have to give out some sort of handout, which you disagree with. You personally, in your own political leanings you disagree with your own work but you're, you're you, you work for the gut you work for this agency and so you have to go along with your work so it comes in and you give it to them and you give it to them in a way that it says if you I mean you wouldn't dare do this in actuality you might get fired but it as if you're forced to give it you would throw it behind your shoulder right like so you would take this here when you really don't want to give, but you're just forced to give, like here, you don't want to even look, like, from the back. That's the metaphor here, from the back, okay? So there's energy that goes out into this world from the back. It's not Hashem's real want. Hashem doesn't really want to do it, but he's forced to, quote, unquote. Ponim, Nemeus, is, is the energy that Hashem wants to, Hashem really wants to, Put into the world. Okay, another example for this, just so you should understand full measure, is when you ask a person, you sit them down, right? And you ask them, "Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do?" Okay, so why do you get up in the morning? I going to work. Why are you going to work? To finish my job, my tasks. Why are you doing your tasks? You have a paycheck. Why are you getting a paycheck? Right? There's always the why. Ultimately, you could back them into the corner. Ultimately, you get to, for my family, something noble, support my family or, or save up for retirement so that I can have food when I, so I don't die. You know, something much more fundamental than just actual money. The money is for some sort of means. So if you ask someone casually, why are you doing it? They can save for my paycheck. But well, when you back them into the corner and you try to get out of them their real want, it's going to be something beyond the paycheck. It's going to be something I'm getting money for, for food, to survive, for my kids, or, you know, something, something more beyond the money, okay? So a person is getting up in the morning, going through the hassle, getting dressed, schlepping out to the Long Island Railroad. Going onto the train, commuting all the way, going to the office, dealing with all the challenges, dealing with all the weather, dealing with all the coworkers, dealing with everything, dealing with all the tasks, a lot, a lot coming at this person, right? Dealing with all that just to get the paycheck, but it's not really for the paycheck because the paycheck is even for something else. This is an example I'm giving you for the real want and for the forced want. Yes, you want the paycheck. But if you didn't have the reason for getting the paycheck behind it, you wouldn't go through the whole hassle for the paycheck, right? Imagine you didn't need. Imagine you could get. You could, imagine you could get to your end. Imagine you could get to your end, which is, which is, uh, which is uh, sustenance or for your family. But you didn't need the paycheck because someone else is giving you money free. Let's say, right? Imagine you can get there. Well, imagine you. Imagine you were able to accomplish what you need to accomplish behind the paycheck without having to go through all the hassle. You would get rid of the hassle in a minute definitely get rid of the hassle in a minute. So it's just to prove that the hassle is all this. That's not your real want. It's not, I really want to go to work. I really want to go to work in order to assume my task. I really want to get the paycheck. No, what you really, really want is what comes out of the end. If you get to that end by other means, you would take the other means. Bill Gates has his own main motivation and, and side motivations. I guarantee you, everyone has them. Maybe it's not a paycheck and money. But there's definitely Bill Gates, right? What do you do what you do? And follow the whole train of his day? There's going to be the end point, the end, where everything he agrees is the means. And if he could get to that end point, by easier means, he would. Correct? Everyone has their means and their end. Right? Everyone has their means and their end. Hashem also has his means and his end. And the godly energy that's going out of he pun him, which is going out with a real want, real desire, is the end. The godly energy places in this world that are achorayim are the means, are the force, quote-unquote, means, or to get to the end. So, practically, what does that mean? That a mitzvah, energy to do a mitzvah, a, a, holy items, all this is obviously coming from Hashem's opinion. Hashem put in this world, the ability to do a mitzvah, the energy to do a mitzvah, the notion to do a mitzvah, the idea to do a mitzvah, all Shav's premiums. But everything else, which can be a distraction, Hashem's still putting in the world. But he doesn't really want to. He doesn't really want to. That's going against his will that the mitzvah should be done. Hashem's putting in the world only by for a means, only that there should be free choice, because otherwise the mitzvah won't have value. But really, he wants the it to be done. Everything else, all these distractions, Hashem also puts into this world. But he puts into this world because that is a real rotten. sense. That was a real will. It's just, as we're going to call it, a harayim. So now, if you understand this fundamental concept, then you understand that everything in this world is godly energy. Everything in this world is the same source. Bad, good, positive, negative, everything comes from the same source. Again, There's no two gods. Back to that story of the the Fitbit Karabat. There's only one God. And a person who has only one God is not scared of the gun. Why? Because everything is coming from the same source. The source is the same. But how it trickles down, how it's given, is very different. Either it's panim primis or ahurayim. But here's the key. Every single thing in this world is coming from the same source. Now, we could explain Why all the negative commandments that don't do come from this, the second of the Ten Commandments, I'll explain to you like this. I'll explain it to you based on what our sages in the Talmud themselves say. Our sages in the Talmud say a statement, which is frankly shocking. Our sages say that a person who has Gasus Haruach, a person who has Arrogance or uh boastfulness, It's as if he's doing a Pretty extreme. Avaidazara means idol worship. Avaidazara means you're actually denying Hashem's existence, you're serving other gods, literally. But a person who's boastful is like he's doing Zara. Should I tell you why that's not so extreme, that statement? Because everything that's sinful is like a way to Zara. That's the truth. Everything that's sinful is like a way to Zara. Why? Because anything that's not Kedusha, anything that's not holiness, anything that's not a mitzvah, and therefore is coming from Panim, is coming from Ahurayim, elokim Acherim. The sole interpretation of the second commandment is You should not have anything to do with the energy coming from Hashem from the Aharaim. So it's not just idol worship. Idol worship may be the most literal example. But truthfully, in truth, every single Avera, every single negative commandment is included in this statute. is included in this principle. Every single sin a person does, is in essence like a Vedasara a denial of God. Now you have to understand the 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 I have to understand the big idea over here. The big idea is is that because we have this notion of Ahthas Hashem the notion of Ahtas Hashem which is that everything is the oneness of Hashem and therefore how do we describe positive energy negative energy in this world we describe it as all part of Hashem it's just a matter of how much revealment, how much concealment. Revealment and concealment are just English words I'm using for Panim and ahar For the energy that Hashem puts into this world which is Panemius, which is revealment, or the energy Hashem puts into this world which is aharam or concealment. The way to imagine it, the best way to understand this concept is it's on one barometer. It's on one single barometer. All unified on one barometer. If we didn't have the notion of of Ahchus Hashem, we didn't have the notion that Hashem, everything is the existence of Hashem, and we had, and we thought that maybe Hashem created the world, walked away, and the world has independence, has true independence, then everything is fractured. Everything is inherently fractured. We don't have one barometer to read everything. We don't have one track mind. There are things that could be good, could be bad. There are things that could be not good, not bad. There are things that could be different. There could be a, a trillion different fracture elements, and each one with its own identity. But because we fundamentally believe that everything is coming from the same source and everything is really a sham, therefore, even from our perspective, where we see things fractured, but it's limited. It's fractured only limitedly. It's fractured only the way we interact with it. But in the way we should perceive it, everything is on a single barometer from revealment all the way to the right, concealment all the way to the left. Extreme revealment is. The Beis Hamikdash, a Torah, right? Things that are overtly holy, things that are overtly good, kindness. That is on the revealment. Hashem's, Hashem's presence is revealed at that, at that time. Extreme concealment is absolute evil, ultimate evil, absolute negativity, extreme avoid the denial of Hashem. That was those are the extreme, but not the claim. That everything else is not on the barometer over here in the middle. It's the barometer of revealment versus concealment. Now let me ask you something. Let's say you're doing a minor sin. Minor sin meaning you're not doing a zara you're not doing you're doing haughtiness, right? You're having gaiva, which is also sinful. But it's not it's obviously not like doing avoid the zara right? Obviously, even according to Allah. In the body interpretation of the Torah, if you look at Allah in the body of the Torah, there's obviously a hierarchy. There are the three big, big cardinal sins. There are lesser sins. There are sins that are quoted in Torah explicitly. There are sins that are only extracted by the sages. There's different levels. But in the soul interpretation of the Torah, if you look at it from its soul, you say that even if the extreme over the year is avodah zara, still, haughtiness is still found on the barometer of concealment. Once you're entering the area of concealment, What is the negative difference to me a concealment to this degree or this degree. It's all the notion of the opposite of Hashem's will. Once you're entering the territory of the opposite of Hashem's will, in, in, in truth, if you want to get to the real, real inner understanding of this, it shouldn't make any difference how big the sin is because you're denying Hashem at the end of the day. Hashem puts two energies of the world, revealment and concealment. It's very binary. That's the idea here. Because with Ahaz Hashem, everything is extremely binary. Either it's revealment or concealment. Once you're going into concealment, that makes no difference to me. How extreme. You're already going into concealment. You're already doing an action that conceals the energy of Hashem further. So the biggest sin, the less biggest sin, now I understand. All the sins are all incorporated in the second of the the, the Ten Commandments. The second of the commandments is a general principle. Do not have other gods. You know what other gods is? You know what avayda is? If you want to get into the words avayda zara, which means foreign worship. To be literal over here, foreign worship doesn't only mean service, serving other gods. It means substituting God for anything. If you're going to rely completely on your doctor and cut out God from the picture, for example, you are dabbling in a form of avayda because you're relying on him. He's your God. You're going to rely on your employer and you're going to cut God out of the picture. You are dabbling in a sense of a of desire. It's desire. It's worship. You're worshiping something other than God. It doesn't have to be worshiping another God. It doesn't have to be another religion. You're taking any single force in this world, even a neutral force, and you're saying that this is something I'm going to rely upon. This is my God. That's a way deserve in the literal sense. Foreign worship. You're not You're not worshiping where you're supposed to worship. You're worshiping a different element, a different energy, a different, a different idea. So 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 you have to understand that in the inner workings of the here, every single error, every single sin, every single, every single anything in this world, which is not overtly for Hashem, is in the category of concealment, is included in the second of the Sarah You shouldn't have any other foreign gods. It means literal idols. No, it can mean anything that your any step that a person takes. In the direction of concealment as opposed to revealment. That's the way you have to understand it. That. that answers our question of how the first commandment includes all of the positive commandments, the second commandment includes all the negative commandments. Uh, my cousin, Shomar Farabashkin, who was famously in jail for for, uh, for a very inflated amount of years. So, anyways, he said a story like this a very religious guy, very religious guy, also was in prison. For, I don't know for what. Okay, could be you deserved it. Anyway, there was a, there's a, there's a commissary over there where you could buy um, very few snacks. Very, the selection is very, very small, but some of the selection is kosher. So there was an ice cream over there, which is kosher, but not halabi surround. Not halabi surround. Now, not everyone keeps halabi saral, but yeah, but no, this guy keeps halabi saral. What? So, and he sees him eating. They were. that "You should know it's not oh. So he tells him, "I spoke to my rabbi. My rabbi gave me a heter, gave me an allowance." He said, "Usually, you have to keep Chol of is an extra stringency in in in, in a kosher, where the the milk has been watched from the milking all the way to throughout the production. So things could be kosher." It comes from a cow, it's kosher. It comes from a pig, it's not kosher, right? Thinks it it'd be kosher, but not chlobisha, because it did not have that extra watch. So, but this person kept that in his days life, clothes. So And over here, he's eating ice cream because his rabbi gave him a heter, which means he gave him an allowance. He says, In very extreme circumstances, you can go a little less in your kosher. Okay. So he said like this I pity this guy so badly. I felt so bad Haran. Because it's not going to end here. It's not going to end here. He said, this well, this rabbi, he thinks he did this guy a favor. He did this guy the worst thing you could imagine. He says, what's a mitzvah? A mitzvah comes from the word, tzaf, comes from the word connection. What's a heter? Heter comes from the word mater, which means the untied. So a mitzvah means you're tying yourself to God. When you do a mitzvah. A there when you when you're given allowance, it's within the Allah framework, it's still according to Allah, but I'm giving you an allowance to go a little lower, you're untying yourself a little bit. So so in a place in a place like this where you have to be tied the most, this rabbi untied him a little bit. You know? So cause, cause the strength to withstand all the temptations, the strength to withstand all the pressures is to be tied even more, not to untie. So I'm just uh you reminded me of that story that and this story connects to exactly what we're saying now. Because even a small thing, even a small thing, you're ready stepping into the space of going down, of going away. Even we're talking about a, a thing that's like it's not even a vera. It's not a it's not a it's not a sin. It's with it's halfly sanctioned, but you are untying yourself, you're going into that direction of concealment, even more. Um Anyway, so that completes the circle over here. That completes the circle. Just to recap very quickly, because next chapter, we're already going to go on to the next building block of this entire logic. Just to recap very quickly, we have this notion called achtas Hashem. Achtas Hashem means that there's a higher perspective and a low perspective. A higher perspective is the, a, a, a very extreme take. And everything, all of existence is completely Hashem. Once we have this understanding in our mind, we then understand that even from our perspective, which we see different forces in the world, and we see the good, the, the, the good, the not good, right? They're opposing. They're really all sourced in the same source. If they are all sourced in the same source, that gives us a further understanding that that everything in this world could be read on one unified barometer. One unified barometer. It could be very, very binary because it's all coming from the same source. Either it's for God or against God. It has to be one or the other. And even if it's a very small, minute stick, sin, and really in the body in the halacha, in the body of the Torah, which is obviously what we live by, there's obviously a hierarchy, there's greater sins, lower sins. But in terms of the neshama, what's happening beneath the service, it's all the same. Because it's all a it's all a singular notion. A singular notion of, it's a harayim. It's against God. It's not what you're 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 going into the territory where God put in the world only necessarily, but he doesn't want you to go there. And once God doesn't want you to go there, it doesn't make a difference to me. If you go to the extreme, you don't go to the extreme. You're going against God's will. That is the one element we need to take away from these two chapters, that when we get to chapter 23, 24, then 25, we'll be able to have a solid foundation to our mental exercise that we're going to unpack on our quest to reveal a Mesoteris, on our quest to reveal the hidden love through your mental capacity. Okay, so this is Tanya Life, just to take um, these things to light. Um, So number one, between us and Hashem, our relationship with Hashem, which is obviously what we're talking about over here. So we have to understand that although there are two elements that we pose over here, two ideas that seem to be contradictory, seem to be a contradiction between them, there is the higher perspective, lower perspective. But we could comfortably hold them in our mind because the, the one's this perspective, one's that perspective, one's Hashem's perspective, one's our perspective. But in terms of our relationship with Hashem, you should understand that our perspective is not what we should be acknowledging and adopting leaving out Hashem's perspective. We as people are supposed to be adopting Hashem's perspective. That's the whole idea. The whole idea is That we have our perspective, the way it is by us. And then there's Hashem's perspective. Our perspective is intuitive. Hashem's perspective is something you got to learn. you got to learn it. You're not supposed to just walk away and say, oh, you know what? There's Hashem's perspective, my perspective. I could just live with my perspective. That's not the goal here. The goal is is that you as human beings should adopt the higher perspective, which is that you, the world, everything around you, all your issues, all your problems, all your accomplishments, everything is nothing. All Hashem. Yes, we don't live that way. Yes, we don't live that way on a regular basis. But from time to time, when you're saying Shema Yisrael, when you're davening, you should be adopting that perspective because slowly but surely, it gives you a sensitivity to spirituality. It gives you a much higher understanding, and it gives you, you're more susceptible to spiritual elements. That's between you and Hashem. Um, In relationship um, um, to yourself, so um, I would take this, in relationship to yourself and relationship to other people, both both um, sides of the same coin, we have this very binary view of either you're with Hashem or, or not with Hashem. Yeah, correct? So usually, whether it's looking at yourself and your spiritual advancement or the way you judge other people, usually you would say that, you know, you do, things don't have to be so clear cut, so black and white, you know, and that is obviously very healthy. But there has to be underneath. I mean, take the body interpretation of the Torah, soul interpretation. The body interpretation gives a hierarchy. There are definitely things you could do to other people or things, or things that you do in yourself which you could say, that's bad. You're bad. You did something bad. I, I, there's, I, I understand where, you know, you do something so extreme. And then there's things, there's mistakes that you say, ah, it's okay. You let them go by. You let yourself go by. Fine, there's a hierarchy. Definitely a hierarchy. But it does also oh so well to us If we also have a soul interpretation here, we take the binary view and we don't give ourselves, don't let yourselves just slip. Ah, it's something small. Whether that's in your own life, because like, you know, if you're trying to uh, exercise, you're trying to do something, you are trying to accomplish a certain task. Ah, just one day, you know, just one thing, just going to eat that one Danish. Yeah, you know. In the bigger scheme of things, it's small, but you're already entering the territory of against, you're entering that territory. You know, you slip up one time. It could be small, but in the bigger picture, you're entering that territory. And the same thing is a relationship with others, right? You could say, yes, there's a big difference between doing a very, very, something very, very horrible to someone, or just doing something small. It could be, and sometimes you say, you know what, I could just cut corners here, I could cut corners there. It's fine. We'll still be in a good relationship. It still will work out. But in the bigger scheme of things, you're already entering territory in a place where they don't want. You're already giving a little bit of anachiza. You're already giving a little bit of a, uh, a handle into a space where they clearly don't want. if you're letting yourself over there. And the bigger scheme of things, what does it make a difference? How extreme, large extreme? You're already entering the territory where you're doing something that they don't want, and that already erodes the relationship a significant, in a significant way.